This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. I'm leading off today. We're going to talk about Paul Tudor Jones. He was kind of one of those early Bitcoin bulls from the world of traditional finance back in 2021. Now he has some fresh comments on Bitcoin in the U.S. facing regulatory headwinds and, quote, real problems given the climate in D.C. We're going to talk about that and more. He also made some comments about the macroeconomic picture, given that he thinks that the Fed is going to stop all those interest rate hikes that have been suppressing activity in markets. But we'll talk to that second. All right. The Bitcoin comment. I have a thought, but I want to throw it to Wendy on this one. What do you think? PTJ was one of those initial prophets of uh, the TradFi world who got into Bitcoin not long ago. What do you think about these latest comments? I don't think anybody is like a prophet when it comes to crypto and Bitcoin. I mean, people, when they started using Bitcoin originally, like way, way back in the day, it was meant to make secure private transactions online for specific things. So, and things have evolved. The narrative continues to change. But I do like to see some guys from traditional finance coming into the space. I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. And I do agree with a lot of his thoughts that crypto is going to surge due to the current economic state, especially in the United States of America. So, and when I say surge, you guys, I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight. I'm not saying it's going to happen now. I am simply saying it takes time, but number should potentially go up. <laughs> I mean, I got a counter take on this one. I mean, this kind of commentary kind of puts him in opposition to prominent Bitcoin maxis such as Michael Saylor, who have been saying that. Hey, the regulatory stance in the U.S. toward Bitcoin specifically has actually been favorable through this crackdown, right? You have SEC Chair Gary Gensler saying, hey, Bitcoin, it's the one true commodity. It doesn't have an issuer. It's decentralized enough relative to Ethereum and others out there in the market, which may be more securities-like. So I think that this kind of puts him in opposition to what, in my opinion, may be the more informed take relative to the regulatory conversations going on in D.C. right now. Uh, but it's interesting to hear him say this. I think probably, you know, those general headwinds are true, but specifically for Bitcoin, and you see this from a lot of the Bitcoin maxis, they say, well, the SEC is looking favorably at Bitcoin and not at Ether. And therefore, that's advantageous to us for the long run, as all these other coins face significant uncertainty. David, do you want to say something? I kind of have to push back against Zach right now, though. Well, go for it and then I'll follow up. Okay. So this is the thing. If we have the SEC and other regulatory bodies pushing back against crypto as a whole, Bitcoin as a whole, then we lose a lot of these centralized exchanges as we're starting to see, even the ones that are the most compliant. So where would one go to actually purchase Bitcoin and then move it to cold storage? It's going to be a lot harder for these guys to operate as well. Now, when we're talking about Bitcoin in 2023, we have Bitcoin ordinals and now we have BRC20 tokens. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the SEC is going to deal with it. Because when you think about it and you compare Ethereum and Bitcoin together, even though they're very, very different. They do have some slight similar characteristics. Yeah, yeah, I'll just agree with all of that because, you know, the point Wendy makes is that Bitcoin is not, frankly, a self-supporting ecosystem. Uh, no less of a maximalist than Jesse Powell at Kraken has said that uh, Bitcoin doesn't pay the bills for them as an exchange. 
it does have second order impacts if you start clamping down on Bitcoin. But I do think that he's right in the, or that the long term picture for Bitcoin is good. But in terms of, you know, the short term price is supported by a lot of this activity that the SEC is cracking down on. I want to also comment on, I think, I think Paul Tudor Jones is also frankly wrong about the Fed and interest rates. We're still sitting at a CPI growth of 4.9% according to the data that I just checked. I mean, the Fed is not joking about wanting to get down to 2%. That's a real thing. And so I just don't think he's right about saying that we're going to stop hiking. The Fed is not going to say like, oh, we've been going down, so we're going to just assume it'll keep going down and everything is fine. They're going to keep pushing, I think. So, so I think he's, he's wrong on that one, frankly. Tuesday's top story. Jen, take us to Capitol Hill. What's up? All right. OpenAI's Sam Altman testified before the Senate Judiciary Community on artificial intelligence this morning. A growing list of tech companies have deployed AI tools, as we know, we talk about them here often, uh, like ChatGPT, recently shining a light on how regulation should be applied to the industry. Sounds very, very familiar. Let's take a look at what Altman had to say. We believe that the benefits of the tools we have deployed so far vastly outweigh the risks, but ensuring their safety is vital to our work, and we make significant efforts to ensure that safety is built into our systems at all levels. Before we release GPT-4, our latest model, we spent over six months conducting extensive evaluations, external red teaming, and dangerous capability testing. However, we think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. All right, there we had Altman calling for regulation. Zach, I'm going to toss it off to you. What do you make of this? Feels oddly familiar to another industry we talk about often. It is funny to see this sort of parallel conversation happening, right? With a lot of the same echoes of, okay, what's the government's role? How do we protect these people? What's going on? I think it is interesting that this industry is sort of ostensibly asking for the government to backstop it should things go horribly wrong. Um, it's a bit different, I think, from the crypto conversation in some respect, but also quite similar, right? Like there's general wariness of these new technologies among those in Congress. They're looking to, A, sort of ride the wave as people become fascinated by these technologies and B, kind of implement some stuff that could put some guardrails on these technologies such that things don't go horribly astray. So it is funny that we hear both these things happening in concert. I wonder if there's ever going to be the intersection of the two conversations, because I think there is a world in which like crypto is the native currency of the AIs, right? And that becomes like really potentially interesting world, like mass adoption of humans in crypto, never going to happen, too complicated. But mass adoption among AIs of crypto, I think that's really what people should be talking about. Danny, what do you think? I have no idea what you were just saying there, Zach. We've just love we've that. seen these AI to- like tokens. I'm like, I don't know how you. I don't AI know how you AI's, take the crypto they world. can't open bank. They can't open a bank account. AI can't open a bank account. They, they can't. They, need to pay I, well, stuff. they can't open a bank account, but they can use uh, GPT-4 to hire a task rabbit to perform a task. So the AI might not be able to make a bank account, but the AI can hire someone to open the bank account for it. And when they do that, I don't know, that maybe then you can get your crypto tokens involved. But the only connection I see in between these two worlds is Sam Altman himself. And of course, <laughs> Sam, uh, critical to OpenAI, so too to WorldCoin, an effort to scan everyone's eyeballs and give them cryptocurrency. For what reason? I don't know. Uh, maybe he does. Maybe he actually will use these tokens uh, in the coming AI future. You know, I was really jealous that you guys spoke about WorldCoin yesterday and I wasn't here. So I had to bring the story to the forefront so we could talk about WorldCoin in some kind of parallel uh, universe. 
I think, Zach, what you're saying is interesting. And I think that, you know, people like Sam Altman are going to start bringing the two worlds together. I really do see these two technologies working together. But are we just saying that because they're both very innovative technologies? Aren't we kind of working towards a future where both AI and crypto are embedded into our everyday lives and work with just all technology. And the discussions around AI, there was like a big discussion around jobs this morning in the hearing. And the way I see it is like AI and crypto are just going to enable humans to do more, right? And so that's where I am going to leave it because I'm losing my train of thought and I'm going to pass it back to you, Zach. It is like the intersections with money that are always the most charged, right? Like crypto stuff is crazy because money is associated, right? The future of the financial system is on the line. And I think like the AI conversation, of course, is going to hinge around jobs and whether or not people are going to be able to, you know, earn a living in a world in which AIs are going to be able to provide increasingly sophisticated work just by themselves. So obviously, it's where these conversations intersect with money that you see a lot of these big key to testy exchanges. And a lot of people start probably rightly worrying about it. So that's why crypto is always charged in terms of these conversations. And it is always fascinating to me to watch the AI conversation interact with people's livelihoods. So anyway, good stuff. This will be something that will be much discussed today, I'm sure, but we are gonna change gears. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. Wednesday's top story. Yes, we have actually a pair of stories today that really highlight some of the weird and fast changing dynamics around crypto regulation. First, in France, we have uh, regulators and authorities basically saying they're open for business to crypto companies. Among other things, the new MICA regulatory framework that's taking hold in Europe uh, starting, I believe, in 2025 is when it goes into effect, but there are some transitional rules that are going to allow companies to operate. Um, already, apparently 75 crypto companies are registered in France under those rules, and they expect as many as 25 more. And that could include companies that are right now still in America, because the new regulatory framework is going to be a lot friendlier than what we're getting in the US. At the same time, the UK, which is no longer part of Europe, remember, is signaling much harsher approach with one regulator saying that uh, crypto should be regulated as gambling. There's a lot to be said about that, including the fact that the UK lawmaker is partly right about the gambling thing, but it's definitely part of a, a bigger shift in, uh, in regulatory regimes. Uh, are we going to see just a massive shift to uh, companies operating maybe in Europe under this new regime? I would take that bet. I would definitely take that bet. The crypto space wants clear guidelines and that's what Mika provides, right? And I think we get to see a little bit of this jockeying uh, between the continent and the UK here, specifically with France warming to crypto, while the UK and others, especially the US, sort of take a more hardline stance. France has been quietly building up. I think it's, it's sort of crypto chops and credibility in recent months. You know, you have several big name events over there. You have several uh, big name ministers sort of involved in some of these crypto events over in, in Paris specifically. So the idea that France is sort of emerging onto the scene, I think is something that we've been watching slowly bubble up over these past couple of months. And again, it's all about this sort of 
regulatory dance that all these different countries are playing. This is a global technology. It can be treated differently in different countries. Some are going to be more hospitable. Some are going to be more wary. And where others see danger, some see opportunity. And that's what we get to see mm -hmm. time and time again with this global technology as different national regulators deal with the stuff. But I'll toss it to Jen up in Canada for, for the view from, uh, view from up north. I'm going to take that bet with you, Zach. You know, at the very beginning of this article, it references the Mika regulation as a relative predictability. The law gives relative predictability to companies that are going to be operating in Europe. And I think that's so important because imagine operating and understanding if I do something bad, something bad is going to happen. But if I comply, maybe nothing will happen or something good. It seems like such a far-fetched idea sitting here in North America, but, but in Europe, they seem to be getting it right. And I think we're going to see countries emerge as leaders in the space that we never expected to see. France is taking over headlines more and more. We're seeing more uh, VC money pour into Europe. I saw some numbers yesterday that European crypto project, VC investment in European crypto projects is up almost 10% in one year. So to, to draw some numbers here, um, in Q1 of 2022, VC investment in Europe was at 5.9%. And in Q1 of this year, it bumped all the way up to 47.6%. So the money is following the regulation. I think it's really unfortunate because I think we're going to see not only money, but talent and innovation also, you know, maybe go across, across the sea. We've already heard, you know, Coinbase is looking at operations, places that are elsewhere than the US. Galaxy Digital has also said they're looking offshore. Binance recently left Canada. So we're seeing the effects of this happen in real time. And unfortunately, we're not really seeing any government or regulators action that. And that may be indicative of their intentions. Zach, I think I saw your hand go back up. Yeah, David, I want your take on this specifically. I think a lot of these threats have been a bit toothless, right? Coinbase is saying, hey, we're taking our ball. <laughs> going home. And then, you know, Brian Armstrong gets on stage a couple weeks later and says, no, 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 we're not leaving the US. Don't worry about it. Do you think that crypto firms in the US have the leverage to sort of make these public pronouncements and expect that regulators or lawmakers will do anything favorably toward them? Or do you think it's just like too small uh, for most regulators or lawmakers to care? Yeah, right now, I think trying to pull a leverage play on this is not the right approach. I think that the focus should be on explaining to people what they're actually dealing with and the reality underlying this stuff. And I think that the UK story is, is a good example of this, right? This claim that crypto asset trading should be regulated as gambling reflects some understanding of crypto because I think that there are sectors where that's actually accurate. I mean, if you look at like a meme coin, I pretty much tend to agree with assessments that those things are what you might call a decentralized Ponzi scheme. But the question becomes then, is your if your approach is just to say that the entire thing is that then you're you're missing a lot and you're shutting down things that could have positive impacts and that real investable assets and systems that have the potential to help people and i think that you're seeing the same thing in the united states right you're seeing this blanket approach and that's the risk here is that you're wiping out the positive use cases with the negative you're not engaging with the substance of any of this when you're doing that kind of blanket condemnation and so you're going to see missed opportunities. I think the specificity is a super good point. And we've seen in the last six months, a bunch of people in the industry trying to make that distinction between tech crypto and money crypto, right? Tech crypto, the stuff underlying a lot of these cryptocurrencies can be transformative, pro-social and help people lead better financial lives. A lot of the money crypto stuff, you're right, especially that subsection of the money crypto por portion, the meme coin section, we say it all the time. It is kind of like gambling. It's a bit like buying a lottery ticket, right? There's not a lot of real utility or underlying functionality beyond just getting a thrill from watching the number rise. 
or fall, which can be, you know, entertaining and useful, I guess, in its own right. But certainly there are other parts of the money crypto conversation, you know, that look more serious and more grown up, right? Whether that's Bitcoin and sort of the institutional embrace, embrace of some of these more established crypto assets as something that their clients should be dealing with. You know, we see that as well. So I think, again, like the call for specificity, both from within the industry and more broadly, I think is really important so that, you know, the baby is not tossed out with the bathwater mm-hmm. because there are some unsavory bits of the crypto world that certainly maybe deserve a bit of a crackdown while there's other stuff that, uh, you know, could be transformative. But Jen, I'll toss it to you. Sorry. Yeah, no, no worries. I, I'm curious, David, as to your opinion, if you think like whose responsibility is it? Is it government's responsibility to kind of make the definition between tokens that could be considered gambling, like meme coins, and then the crypto that actually has this underlying technology mm-hmm. that is going to innovate and drive the financial sector forward? Because I look at what's happening in the UK, right? And they say crypto is gambling. And then they say, you know, we're, we're looking into a digital pound and we're looking into a digital pound to restore trust into the financial system. And in the messaging I hear when they talk about the digital pound is very similar to that of crypto. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, whose responsibility do you think it is to do this differentiating? And do you think that sometimes the messaging is tweaked as to maybe sway people towards a digital currency that is created by the government instead of one that is truly decentralized? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a a side issue, but I have to make the point that like, if you're making the argument that you're going to digitize your currency and that's going to increase financial system faith in your currency, that's incoherent. That doesn't make any sense. That's not why you issue a CBDC. So like, that's silly. But as far as the government role in classifying assets, I think there are two different answers there. And one is maybe there is some technical definition that through discussion and iteration, you can actually find to put into legislation that would differentiate between something that has an actual application and something that doesn't. I think that's a slim chance that you can actually find a really solid technical definition that makes that distinction. So really, the important thing then becomes around disclosures, business plans, asset matches, and other more fundamental things that you can lay out in a document, for example, that's required if you want to trade an asset on an exchange that's being regulated. A little bit like securities disclosures, even if we don't want these things defined as securities. And, and so that disclosure then becomes a ground for people to make their own decisions about how they want to invest in an informed and hopefully reliable and enforceable way so that you don't just have disclosures that are full of lies. I think that most uh, crypto advocates would, would support that second scenario where you have a rigorous disclosure framework that doesn't rely on specific definitions to make those distinctions. Thursday's top story. We're going to talk about some self-custody shenanigans. What's going on, Jen? Why, why is everyone mad at Ledger? I just don't get it. What's happening? Everyone is mad at Ledger. So here's what's happening. Ledger is continuing to defend itself about their recovery system, right? So they're saying that Ledger has always technically been able to extract users' key. The hard wallet company recently released a program called Recover. Now, Recover would allow users to back up their seed recovery phrase through encrypting it into fragments with third parties. Users were originally concerned with this, saying that it could make uh, their wallets more vulnerable. And now Ledger's taken to Twitter and responded and said, you know what, it's always technically been possible for us to write firmware that facilitates key extraction. People are mad. There's a lot going on here. Adam, I'm going to toss it to you. What do you make of all of the back and forth? 
I think it's a sign, you know, that uh, we continue to be stuck in this thing where it's like everybody wants to be your own bank, but there are downsides to that. And so we accept compromises. A lot of times those compromises are implicit. They're not really things that we think about. They're just, hey, this seems like it's a good solution. And I think that, again, what you have here is a company saying the quiet part out loud, which is that to the extent that you abstract away any of these types of problems, you typically are putting some type of at least partially trusted relationship. Now, I actually think that the, the concern here is largely overblown. You know, it's a very reasonable understanding or it's a very reasonable sort of uh, like response. But still, like the actual like potential attack scenarios here are not really ones that I'm concerned about. Uh, it is worth noting, though, that, again, just like by surfacing these concerns, a lot of times you can take something that has always been an issue and you can make it into a real issue. And then again, in the world of crypto Twitter, everything gets amplified to 11. Zach, what do you think? Yeah, I don't hate this response. And I, I think some of the, the, the hand-wringing is, is, hand is a bit overblown, right? Like, you know, let's just be honest here. Technically, yes, this stuff is what can happen, right? And I think going out there and saying that, is fine, right? I know this is sort of casted as a PR blunder, but it kind of feels to me like, hey, someone just sort of saying how it is. And I think, again, like to the point about the bigger picture here, not dealing with the response about the picture of this sort of like this new feature, right? You know, I think Ledger is interestingly sort of caught between the OG hardcore crypto ethos and moving the needle on crypto self-custody to make things a bit easier, right? They got the guy who designed the iPod to, to design a new device for them called Stacks. They have all these funny, like high fashion partnerships with little various dangles and stuff that you can do with your Ledger hardware wallet. So they're trying to sort of move the needle and make self-custody more mainstream. But of course, as the CEO mentions in the piece, to do that, you have to make some compromises and you have to make some compromises around trust assumptions. And if this is what those new customers are going to demand, then maybe providing that optionality is fine, right? Maybe providing that backup recovery is something that should be acceptable in terms of what exists in the Ledger product suite. But obviously, again, Adam, as you mentioned, right, sort of the, the, the angst and the, um, you know, the anger about some of this stuff does get amplified in the world of crypto Twitter, where sort of these things can become a um, big deal out of relatively small origins. So, you know, I think this is sort of a, a mainstream story. This is a mainstreaming story, right? Mainstreaming crypto into the real world requires some compromises and some trade-offs around those really foundational promises of being your own bank and holding your own assets without having to trust an, an intermediary. And they're saying, well, hey, in some instances, maybe a little bit of trust is acceptable, but to purists, that is not, not sitting well. I'm going to throw it to Jen. I saw Adam's hand up. I want to get Jen on the board here. Yeah, I agree with both of you completely. Ledger is not the only wallet that's looking at this either, right? There are other wallets that are maybe not hard wallets, like Soul Wallet that's supported by the Ethereum Foundation that is also looking at ways to make accessing and storing your assets easier for the mainstream. And here, I think Ledger's just been caught up in, in a narrative storm. I want to look at this tweet by Binance's CZ. I think he sums up the kind of negative side of this argument. He said in this tweet, so the seed can leave the device now. Sounds like a different direction than your keys never leave the device and the your keys never leave the device is in quotation. So I think the only real like, you know, PR blunder here is maybe not thinking through how do we introduce this new messaging to the community when we've all when we've kind of leveraged this, your not your keys, not your coins message. So I just think maybe there was like a little blip in thinking through how we're going to introduce this to the world. But I agree completely with you. If we're going to achieve 
mainstream adoption. We have to make it easier to, to use some of these products. And I think it's interesting that CZ said this because I'm pretty sure he was the one who went out there after FTX and said, you know, not everyone can hold on to their own assets. It's super hard to hold on to your own seed phrase. And here he is taking a side in the ledger argument. Adam? Yeah, you know, this is not a new problem. Like when we're talking about this disconnect between sort of the crypto native community who feel very strongly about these things and for good reason, you know, and sort of the, the broader early majority adoption thing. Back in 2014 through 2017, 2018, uh, this, these were the problems that I was working on, and I was many years too early for it. But I ran into a lot of these things, which is that even asking somebody to understand what a seed phrase is and to retain that seed phrase in a way where they're never going to lose it, that's actually a really bad path for like 10 plus percent of people. And again, when you start talking about these mass adoption numbers and you start talking about these systems, again, like, you know, for all of the ills that, that I, I find with the current financial system, one of the things that they've done very well is they've made people, they've given people redundancy in the systems, right? So it, it's, it's okay if your bank fails because, hey, so long as not every bank is failing right now, then there's the ability for you to get your money back because those safety nets exist. If somebody charges money on your credit card, you can get that money back. And so those are, again, like those are patches to problems that exist within the system, which is that it is not immutable, which means you can have those types of attacks. But Bitcoin and cryptocurrency broadly need those types of solutions built on top of their much better foundation that can ease these problems too. And that really is what this seems to be to me. So I agree with you, Jen, that this was not an artful way to talk about this, and it certainly triggered a lot of people. But it's a real problem, and it's an important one. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 